it's um, 6.33, that seems to me a very good time to uh, get our events rolling. So uh, let me welcome you all to LSE, to this uh, Forum for European Philosophy Dialogue on the topic of democracy in the workplace. Um, my name is Jonathan White, I'm from the European Institute here at LSE, and I'm going to be uh, chairing this uh, discussion, of course, when it's a, a dialogue, the role of the chair is very much a light touch point. So I should be uh, chairing from a distance, let's say. Um, but it's, as my chair, it's, it's a great pleasure to welcome our two speakers uh, today, Professor Axel Gosseries and Paul Loach. Um, most of the uh, information is already on the board here behind me, which is, uh, is wonderfully efficient. Uh, Axel Gotteries, as you will see and probably know, is a professor from the University of Louvain and also a, a research associate here at the LSE. Um, he has a wide uh, interest in a whole range of uh, issues of political philosophy, of uh, ethics, and also public policy. I know his work um, partly through. Uh, interest in intergenerational justice, which is a central theme of his work. And of course, workplace democracy is also something which Axel has worked on a great deal. Um, Paul, Paul Loach, on uh, Axel's left, is, uh, has a background in the world of business, um, has long-term experience as an investor in small and medium-sized enterprises, um, as a business developer, and as a management expert, um, and has also been chief executive at a global firm of asset managers. So we have two very qualified people, I think, to talk on this topic of workplace democracy. It seems to me um, this is probably quite a good time to be talking about workplace democracy. Uh, clearly we live in a time where a lot of very significant decisions are being taken throughout the economies of Europe and beyond. Um, decisions which will have a lot of effects for those in companies and beyond them, in the workplace and outside. Um, and clearly that raises questions of who should be taking those decisions, who should be included within the pool of decision makers, what type of theoretical and of course practical issues are at stake in these kinds of questions. time such as this workplace democracy becomes a necessary <coughs> an idea of particular um, importance or conversely to look at it the other way is it in times like this that perhaps workplace democracy seems more utopian than ever an idea which is uh, even further from the political agenda than at less uh, dramatic times in the global economy so when you look at it the one way or the other I think it's a time of some interest to be talking about democracy in the workplace. With these broad uh, background questions in mind, I'd like to hand over to our speakers now. As I said, it's a dialogue. I will let them organise that dialogue as they choose to. We'll have plenty of time for questions later on, so um, do, uh, do store up any interventions you'd like to make, and we'll come to those in due course um, after, our, after our dialogue. So let me hand over to um, whichever of you would like to speak. First, Thanks for going first. Uh, order. Okay, so I'm going to go first. Shall I leave the mic like this? or? Yeah. 
So um, I'll tell you a bit about the, the interest I have in the topic to launch the discussion and the dialogue. So the initial question uh, I had was, in some ways, if you look at a, a public firm on the stock market, uh, it could be seen as comparable to the situation we had in states in the past with the property requirement for voting, where only landowners had the right to vote and those who didn't have land didn't have the right to vote. And uh, this is how I, I started getting interested in this uh, issue. And I guess one way of putting the question would consist in saying, imagine that we are all Democrats in this room, so we all believe that democracy is something valuable in a state. Uh, we probably don't share the same reasons why we believe it's important. And we also probably don't have the same vision about what exactly is important in a democracy. Right? Some people will emphasize inclusiveness, other people will emphasize participation, deliberation, equality of power, all sorts of things. Uh, so there are many reasons to be Democrats, and there are be many ways of being Democrats in states. Um, then the question arises, well, imagine that we are all Democrats about states. How comes that we, and also most likely most of us, will value local democracy as well? So how comes that not many of us uh, would think naturally that uh, democracy is also the thing to do for, in the case of universities, for example, in the case of political parties, uh, trade unions, uh, in the case of uh, churches, or in the case of firms? Right? So this is the general question. If we value democracy in the case of states, of a state, uh, do we have good reasons not to value democracy in the same way uh, in the case of organizations, including firms? So this is the, the initial question. So I, I would take a very simple notion of democracy here, which is government of the people, by the people, for the people. So when you look at when you take for the people, you have the goal of the organization, <coughs> and we have by the people, you have an idea about who is supposed to decide in that kind of organization. And uh, in the case of firms, you look at, which is not at all the standard case, but you look at a public firm and you look at stock, uh, stockholders, uh, at least in the ideal situation, we can consider that uh, shareholders are those who have the right to vote in firms. They, they go to the General Assembly and they, they have the power in the General Assembly, ideally. Of course, we know that managers have a lot of power too. And uh, the question then is, why not the workers too? Right? So why should the shareholders be the only ones to have the right to vote and not the workers as well? So it's a challenge for philosophy, for political philosophy. And uh, I guess there are, two, there are three things we need to do if we want to address this challenge. First, we need to have a positive argument. Why do we, why do we think it's uh, necessary, uh, in normative terms, to have democracy in a place like a, a firm, a corporation? And then we need to address objections. I'm sure Paul will have plenty of objections. Um, and then we'll need to also provide an idea about the kind of the, the, the shape of workplace democracy, what we have in mind. Is it cooperatives, production cooperatives, co-determination, uh, all sorts of other possibilities. 
And uh, so these are the three things we need to, to have. So maybe if I can, maybe I, I'm just going to say a little bit about the first thing. So we need a, a positive argument, and this is, I guess, the hardest bit. Um, what we have had recently is some developments on the idea of the demos, uh, what we call the boundary problem. How do we define who should be included, for example, who should vote on immigration policy in the UK, for example? And there have been different answers to that question. And I suspect that answering this question will both provide you with, a, with an idea of who should vote in the firm, and perhaps as well an idea about uh, whether we should have democracy in firms too, right? Because we want these two things. And the second question is harder to answer than the first one, I believe. But maybe we can, we by answering the first question, we answer the second at the same time. So what are the main answers to this question? So how can we define the boundaries of who should decide on such and such issue? There are two basic candidates, and they are somehow related to. One is, you could call it the input-based account, and the, or the contribution-based account that says all those who contribute to the wealth of an organization or to a state should be entitled to have a say in how the state or how the organization is being run. And so call this input-based. And then there is the another account that is uh, at least in part different that says, no, it's, it could be called the impact-based or all those who are affected and only those who are significantly affected should have the right to vote in a firm or in a state. So this, these are proposals, of course they are very general, about how do we define who should decide on a given issue. So how do we define the demos uh, in a democracy? Because remember, we gave as a definition government of the people, for the people, by the people. So we want to know who these people, these people, is, these people are. Uh, if you want a, a fiscal analogy or fiscal version of these two accounts, you have two slogans that some of you may consider identical, but they actually have a different logic. One says no tax, no vote, and that's actually compatible with the idea of the property requirement for voting. The, the fact of having property was connected with the fact of paying land taxes, and that was one of the reasons why you were attaching the right to vote to it. So that idea, no tax, no vote, and another idea that says no vote without representation. And it's a different idea that says if you want to impose taxes on me, you should first give me a chance to have a say about what kind of taxes, how are we going to spend them, and so on. So these are two accounts. I suspect the second one is more plausible than the first one, although both of them have their difficulties. Um, and. Of course, philosophers always like to go deeper into things and, and ask, but what's the idea behind the idea of being affected or only those affected and all those affected should have the right to vote? And there are probably different intuitions there. One of them could be a golden rule-ish intuition that says, if those people are subject to these laws, we, we have more chances that the laws won't be too harsh. Right? So that's one idea. Another idea is, uh, could be called epistemic idea. Uh, those who experience the effects of a given uh, way of regulating society 
uh, are well placed to to object to this and are those who who have the informal knowledge about what are the real effects of uh, legislation or about uh, the real effects of uh, some decisions including strategic decisions in a firm and that's why we want these people to participate in this decision making process in a state or in an organization. There may be other intuitions but so the basic ideas are, are, are these two and my hypothesis is that under both of these ideas we would perfectly be able to justify the inclusion of workers in the demos of the firm uh, so that not only shareholders but workers as well should have the right to vote. So maybe I'll leave the floor to Paul. Well, Axel, thank you very much. Can I say from the very beginning that um, if I sound at occasions a bit strident, it's because A, that's my way, and B, I'm very empirical. And I don't really much care for some of the, um, the bases on which the theory of workers' <coughs> democracy is built. I have three objections, basically, to workers' democracy as, as, as yet undefined. Four. One is it's very, very difficult to define what everybody means by workers' democracy either in its structure or at the level at which it should operate. The plant level, office level, uh, in the globalized world, this is a doubly difficult problem. Uh, my next issue with it is the source of the theories. Nobody's asking for this. The trade unions are pretty hostile to it. The managers don't want it. The workers are not lining up in the streets for it. It's not part of the anti-capitalist protest anywhere. Uh, it's never mentioned anywhere. But where does it come from? It seems to be one of those, every now and again, capitalism is, in capitalism is in crisis. And so, sorry, I hope nobody takes this amiss too much. Academics sort of start sweeping the floor to see what theories are lying around that they can apply to solve the problem. Let's fly this one. And I think this is very much in, in that kind of category. So I have a source problem. I don't really trust the source from which this argument's coming. You know, I do think that many academics don't understand capitalism at the operational level. Secondly, I, I have a problem with the theory. I utterly reject the analogy of state and firm. I just think that's a nonsense. It's utterly absurd. Uh, the state has powers that the firms do not. The state is not a voluntary association of people. It has coercive powers. It can lock you up. It can make you pay tax. So if anybody wants to do that to me, I'd certainly want to vote. But that's not the same as saying because I work for someone, I also have to have a vote. Uh, and we'll probably develop that story a little bit more as, as time goes on yeah, in the course of this discussion. And then, of course, I have an absolute raft of practical <laughs> objections because even if you could agree that it was a good thing and you could, you, know, you, could, you could get a theory that really worked, and even if you could define exactly what you meant by workers' democracy, does everybody get a vote, is it a delegate or a representative thing, at what point and what issues do they get to vote on, even if you agree all that, how does it happen? Where does it come from? Does it drop, you know, drop their sex machine from the sky? Well, no. There are only three ways to get this thing done, if this is what we want. One is to have companies start up on a cooperative basis. There are currently 400, roughly speaking, cooperatives operating in this country uh, against 2.1 million businesses registered at PAYE and, um, and, and that. This is not a new idea. Cooperatives come and go. There's problems with that. But that's the only way. The other way is that the John Lewis model, uh, which is that an entrepreneur sets this thing up and then he gets some kind of pang of conscience and decides, actually, you know, really, it's better if the workers get involved in this and, and have a say. 
kind of Owenism. And that's what happened to John Lewis. It took them a long, long time to get from there to here, and it seems to work in their case. And it's, of course, if you read about workplace democracy, there's about eight or nine companies that get rolled out across the world as proof that it's a damn good thing. But it, unless, unless the owners hand it over to the, to, to the people, to the workers, workers' democracy is not something that's just going to happen like that. And the final thing, of course, is that uh, it's legislated. And I have a powerful objection against legislation on things like this. One, because what right is in the state to interfere in how companies are run in terms of ownership and votes? I mean, the rules, the rules of the game, the runners and riders, the laws that determine who could do what to whom, that's fine, contract control. But if I start a firm, then as long as I work within the law and within the current, the current ethical norms, then I'm entitled to employ people on any terms I want. They're not entitled to take them. They don't have to take them. They don't have to accept it. But once they decide to join my firm, I'm the guy, until such time as it becomes a public company, who gets to set the rules. It's my money. It's my idea. It's my effort. It's my creativity. It's my sweat. And it's my bloody firm. <laughs> there you are. Tommy's your shirt out there. <laughs> Okay, um, let's see, where to start? Uh, nobody asked for it, right? Let's start with this. Right? You say, and it's true, uh, trade unions don't really ask for it. And it's, uh, it's an interesting question. We, I've been discussing several times with a trade unionist uh, in Belgium, in France, on that issue. And uh, actually, they are not keen at all. And I didn't really find out uh, exactly why. Uh, I guess the in the current structure, they have a certain a power that is uh, set in a certain way, and probably they, they anticipate that some of this power will they will be lost if you move towards uh, plant-based, for example, plant-based uh, workplace democracy. I suspect that uh, maybe there are two possible explanations why trade unions are against it. Uh, in countries like Belgium or France, you, you have negotiations at the sector level. And maybe they believe that uh, doing things at the sector level uh, is, is a better way of uh, dealing with the issues. And um, so that's one possible reason. Um, I had another reason in mind, but I, I forget. Um, so capitalists don't ask for it, but that's, of course, it's obvious. right? The reason is obvious. It doesn't mean they are right not to ask for it. Uh, if they have something to lose, uh, it's uh, it's to be expected that they would not be be very keen. Uh, workers don't ask for it, and that's also interesting, right? Um, how can we tell that they don't ask for it? They don't go in the street, and a lot of people have um, accepted the idea, for example, that as you said, it's my firm, right? And uh, of course, uh, you could also say it's my country. It's my country. I pay taxes. I own UK, right? And uh, maybe you won't say that. No. Right. So, so the sense in which we can say I own the firm. Of course, you own your shares if you're a shareholder, and you own your money if it's your money. Yeah. But uh, what does it mean to own the firm? Right? Owning the firm would be owning the labor force of the, of the workers and so on. And uh, it's a concept, I mean, this concept of ownership keeps being used in the case of organizations like firm, 
But surprisingly, we don't use it a lot in the case of state. We don't. We don't uh, I don't say that I own Belgium or I'm one of the co-owners of Belgium. I don't. I wouldn't say that. And I wouldn't uh, say. I wouldn't think it's meaningful to say that we can own a country. And I think that an organization, unlike a house or or a piece of money, you, uh, is something that you cannot really own. Or you can say I own it in the sense that I have power, but uh, rhetor rhetorically saying that you own it seems to convey a different idea. So could that's could about. Uh, could, yeah. could I just say yeah. on that yeah. about owning a state? Um, no, I mean, I think it flies in the face of common sense. Nobody in the street or anywhere would say that you own the state. The thing about owning the firm, is, and I accept that there's grades of difference depending on what type of firm you're talking about. And, and, and you know, I'm starting with the startup, and then it will migrate and progress into a public company with diverse shareholders and thousands of employees and globally. And there's a separate set of issues between the, you know, the, the, those two extremes. But if I own my firm because I've set it up, I can wind it up. I can change the direction in which it's moving. I can change its location. I can't work, I can't, if I was a Belgian, I can't wind Belgium up. I can't move Britain to somewhere else. If I own a house, I can knock it down. I can extend it. I can rip the guts out of it. I can, do, I can sell it. I can't sell the United Kingdom. You know, the, for me, this, this concept of, of, of the, the analogy between the firm and the state is something that works probably in a, in, in, in a thought experiment in a laboratory, but it has no resonance for me. And, and, and I'd be interested when the questions come to hear if it's got uh, resonance for you. And I'm certainly open to persuasion. I'm not as close-minded as I sound. But when you say you, you sell a firm, what do you mean by that? Well, imagine you have a, imagine the case of a public firm right, with shares. You say, I want to sell the firm. What do you do? Well, uh, you, you, well, as I say, let's, let's talk about, first of all, an SME, um, an entrepreneurial firm that's set up. Typically, the stages of progress for that firm would obviously be start-up, which is heavily dominated by the entrepreneur or the small team of entrepreneurs. Um, managers and technicians are then employed because, employed because they have fundamentally different, different skill sets, and that's part of the trick, is employing the right people in the right place at the right time. And I certainly wouldn't assume that everybody who works in the firm knows how to do that. There's, a, there's an experience level that's required there to get that balance right, which is one of the reasons why some firms fail and other firms flourish. But it gets to a point, and the entrepreneur says, well, you know, we can't take it any further, or we can't raise sufficient funds to take it where we want. It sells it to, to uh, a bigger firm, or it floats on the stock exchange, which is another way of selling it. And uh, essentially, it organizes for the ordinary shares of the company to be bought by the acquiring firm, which is not as easy as it sounds. And then the title passes to the new firm yeah. and the contract. But so um, I agree with you that on, on one issue, which is that uh, there is a real problem of accounting for the connection or explaining the, the nature of the tension between property rights and democracy. And to take an example uh, that, that brings us close to the, the start of an SME, take a situation in, in a house and you, you hire a person to, to clean your house. And this person cleans your house and discovers that actually if you were to put the carpet somewhere else and the cupboards uh, in a different place and 
you you would have a shelf of a given type and so on, work would be much easier for for this person, right? And um, so in that kind of cases, maybe sh this person uh, he would come to you and and tell you, look, I I think that uh, I'm working in your house here every day. I I should have a right to vote about where you put your carpet and the the the, the, the type of windows you put and so on, right? And of course, in that kind of case, you will say, well, that's a little bit too that goes too far, right? And probably you you will account for that in terms of property, right? You'll say, actually, uh, it's it's my property and so on and uh, why does this person ask for that right I contract this person I, I provide conditions for this contract and so on at the same time when I move to a public firm right and uh, there's all these things in between there's the SME and so on if I move to a public firm I have the feeling that the situation is quite different and I'm not able to tell where the cutting uh, where the cut is and what the nature of the cut is but I have the feeling that uh, we are far from the entrepreneur, the guy who, the, or the, the woman who started with a certain idea and so on. We are involved in a, in a, in a collective project with loads of people and uh, all of them being affected, right? Not only the shareholders, but the workers as well. They are being extensively affected through physical involvement in the firm, through many different ways. Uh, the fact that, for example, <coughs> labor is far less divisible than capital so that uh, if shareholders are able to to spread the risk, uh, workers are not, and so so in that kind of cases, my impression is that uh, we are in a different situation than in the situation of the SME that just starts, or in this, this, the domestic uh, example as well. And so there is what goes on there is not clear, but there are certainly two questions: what is the nature of the tension between property rights and democracy? And second, where do we draw the line between this domestic situation and, and the situation of a, a firm that we call public? Of course, we are not doing, going. This is to be rhetorical to say, yeah, you see, it's public, so it, it requires democracy. But there is some sense in which we are at a different scale. It's, it may be just a matter of scale, but it may be something else. It may be associated with the fact, for example, that the state grants privileges to shareholders, such as limited liability or things of that type that would contribute to explaining why we may have different intuitions in the, in the two cases. If I could summarize what, the what I think the argument coming from the pro-workplace democracy team is, and, and that's uh, another thing I'd like to pin to the wall is the notion between democracy and employee voice. You know, there's a fundamental difference here, and, and nobody, uh, I haven't yet argued about employee voice, which, which I will do. Um, I think what's been said is an employer puts his money into a business and the workman is life. The one has as much right as the other to regulate the business. Or another way, most employees, this is what I read recently, most employees are subject to managers they do not elect and rules in which they had little or no say. They have a right to be included in the say. I'd like to ask Axel where the right comes from because he's the expert on these things. <laughs> But I'd like to know where the right comes from. So under the account I, I give at the beginning, the, the idea is very simple and of course maybe too simple. It says if you're significantly affected by some kind of decisions, you should have a say about how the, the organization is run. Of course you could tell me, but we have a list of rights for that and uh, so the state already recognizes a, a whole set of rights. Why do we need on top of that 
to have democracy, right? But that is a question you could ask about, for example, local democracy as well. You could say, well, we already have democracy at the state level with a constitution in some cases, at least. Uh, we have uh, a set of rights recognized to all all sorts of uh, for all sorts of activities in the state. Why on earth do we need to have, on top of state democracy, local democracy? Right? You could say we don't need that. Right? Um, and so, so I'm not providing an answer here, of course not. But uh, but. There are different situations, so the, the public firm is one situation, local democracy is another situation, where you have, you can start with the state, state democracy where most people have a clear intuition, maybe not about why we need democracy, but that we, we should have democracy. And then we need to work out why we think the same about local democracy, why we shouldn't think the same in the case of public democracy in your case, right? But again, we come back to this articulation between rights and voice about the content of these rights or about how we, sh we should articulate these rights? I, I um, first of all, you know, it, it, is, it is intriguing, isn't it, that uh, here we are sitting, um, as you say, in the middle of a, not only one crisis, a penumbra of crises. I mean, there are almost too many to count. Um, and, and it's frightening in many ways for, for, for a lot of people. But somehow or other, workplace democracy might be one way of helping us through this storm. And you know, the proof of it stands on the back of the state is democratic. Now, isn't it interesting that right now, economic performance is being, and, and, and democracy together is being questioned. I don't think it's very serious questioning, but it might be. I mean, after all, the arguments that have come from Asia, Malaysia, China, other states, who are having very successful economic performance, they're not democratic, and say, why the hell should we follow the Western way? There's more than one way of skinning this cat. Um, you know, in other words, even if, even if I don't for any minute agree that because there's democracy there, there's got to be democracy there, you just don't see the connection, but we'll just have to agree to disagree and move on from that. It's still not given uh, that the right way to run the railroad is, if you want economic performance, is, is the democratic way. Now, I think there's a lot of reasons why, you know, <laughs> we're not going to change that too soon. But they, are cha they have changed it in Greece, and they have changed it to a degree in Italy, you know, where technocratic governments are taking over, and the people have had no say in, in, in who's running their country and in who's running their economy. So I think it's just not strong enough to say it's, you know, we've got democracy in the state level and we've got democracy at... At, uh, at the local level and then therefore for economic performance because I think in the end the role of a firm is at any size is fundamentally different from the role of a local authority or a state and, and, and the role of a firm is to produce stuff that we all want at a price that we can afford in the best way we possibly can out of which people earn you know money to maximise the autonomy they had in non-work spheres of their life. The state stands on top of the taxes. If there's not a, not a vigorous commercial structure, a com commercial sector, then the state is as weak as the underlying commercial. It's not able to perpetuate itself without it. So even if we were to agree all of that, we've still got a problem with what happens if everybody in the firm gets a vote. Will it work? Can a firm survive?
So, so two answers. Uh, I don't think that personally I wouldn't defend democracy on the with with the justification that democracy is more economically uh, performant, right? That's not the kind of justification I would provide in favor of democracy in a state. Mm. Um, so even if other regimes were to turn out to be more e economically sound, I wouldn't say that uh, this is a, an important argument uh, against democracy in the case of state. Now, I also agree with you that uh, firms are there to some extent, maybe not only for that, but to produce stuff, right? Of course, uh, what this stuff is, is is a big issue. And you could say, well, one of the things it produces is, for example, jobs. Or it also feeds shareholders. It feeds <coughs> consumers. It's, it does all sorts of stuff. Um, so you could, uh, I think we can agree uh, on the fact that firms are there to produce stuff. Uh, we may disagree on the kind of stuff they, uh, they should produce. But uh, I don't see that uh, workplace democracy is incompatible with producing stuff. Uh, so I'm going to give the example that people keep giving, but it's a good example, the Mondragon cooperatives, right? Uh, so probably most of you know it's, uh, it's, uh, it's actually a meta-cooperative that, uh, that covers, I think, at some point at least was covering like 40% of the Basque economy. So it's not neg negligible. It produces stuff in all sorts of sector, sectors of activity, in, and it also has its own bank to, to fund the production of this stuff. And, uh, and I think that uh, assuming that involving workers will jeopardize our capacity to produce stuff uh, is not realistic, because we have plenty of, uh, of, de of democratic firms around, and they, they produce the same kind of objects that are being produced by standard firms. Uh, and so if you assume that uh, involving workers will hinder this, it's probably because you assume that workers are not able to understand what consumers really want or are not sensitive to the fact that if consumers don't buy these things we produce, uh, they are going to lose their job and so on. And I don't think that's very realistic. So I don't, uh, I totally agree with you that Yes, uh, companies are there to produce things, but it's not incompatible at all with the idea of uh, involving workers in deciding, first of all, how to produce these things, and maybe also what kind of things we want to produce. Uh, <coughs> I don't think we're going to get any meeting of minds on, 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 on this, um, certainly at the level of, of democracy, because it flows from... Um, you know, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I would imagine that some of the things that, that are said about, you know, just because I'm impacted, I, I, I work for an organisation, say, and I'm impacted by what that organisation does, I should have a vote, equal rights, stand side by side with the, with the permanent holders of permanent capital, the residual rights holders. It, it kind of sounds nice, and the way it's supported is kind of, because that's what happens in, in the state. Well, I've said there's no point in banging that one. We're clearly not going to agree. I don't think you've, if you don't mind me saying so, I don't think you've made the argument, and I dare say you'll say the same, uh, same, same about me. It all comes down to what, what, are the, what are the employees losing? You know, they're losing their autonomy. In other words, what are they being robbed of if they don't get a vote? Uh, they're, they're, you know, are they being robbed of something? And, and this is the bit I struggle with. 
Well, hang on. I mean, we, we haven't got to the, the point of the firm going bust yet. We're talking about a thriving firm. It might go bust, and that's a, a classic case where I think worker democracy, one vote for everybody, when a company's got its back against the wall and it's struggling to survive. I think, you know, democracy then is not something I would choose to be part of. Two things are going to happen. One decision-making will be very slow, and the best people are going to go, leaving the worst people behind. It's not a recipe for a recovery program, having workplace democracy, when companies are in trouble. This is not a theoretical thing. This is a real thing. This is what happens day to day. You know, it is not a place to have recovery. You never hear of a company hauling itself out of a hole because everybody gets a vote. Certainly consultation, certainly discussion. No question about that, which is why I take off the wall the question of employee voice. But that's not the same as democracy. Not at least as I understand the way you mean democracy. But, but hold on, so consultation takes as much time as voting. So if you say it's, it's too slow and so on, I don't think that... I mean, yes, if you're thinking about direct democracy on every single kind of decision, but that's, of course, not what goes on in democratic firms that, that exist all over the place, and that's not what I have in mind. Uh, so, so the fact that most good people will flee, that, uh, I, don't, I don't think that's what we observe too, right? In democratic firms, we have democratic firms around, they still exist. No, no, I'm, I'm saying when, when times is hard in a firm, uh -huh. uh, and it's a dem if it is a democratic firm, I mean, you know, there's plenty of evidence of that. The co ops are failing all the time, new ones springing up, they're dying, you know, the whole time. The turnover in level of co ops is huge. But do they, is there more turnover than with standard firms? Well, I, I think, first of all, they struggle. And one of the reasons why they struggle, which is part of the argument, is, is because they can't raise capital. They come with their own capital in their own pocket. And that's usually not enough. Uh, and access to capital is very tough because the people who have the capital, and, and they're not always, you know, because one of the problems I have is how much of all this is, you know, couched in 19th century notions of what capitalism is. You know, it's not really a big boss employer and poor old ground down, exploited, alienated workers. It's just, you know, the world's moved on, at least it has in this country. Um, you know, I, I think we've got a, we've got a, face a fact that accountability, uh, to, you know, giving them a voice is not the same as accountability. You can't raise capital when you're, in, when, when you're, a, when you're a, a cooperative, um, except under very, very certain circumstances like the Mandragon, which of course I got down here, the usual suspects, you know, John Lewis, Mondragon, Senko, Brazil. Um, but co-determination in Germany, for example, is not based on the same model, right? So, so you have two basic models. One model is, uh, okay, let me give a caricature of the two models. One model says uh, we have the workers, only the workers, the workers are those who bring the money, and of course we have money, uh, we have problems to raise money. And the other model says, if, uh, sorry to, to go back to the analogy with the state, but take, go back to the property owning, uh, the property requirement for voting, and how did we get rid of this? There were two ways of doing so. Either you'd uh, run a land reform and give land to everyone, right? And that's what people have in mind when they, they think about democracy. Sometimes they will say, well, we give a few shares to all workers and then they can contribute, they can participate as shareholders, right? But uh, this is, of course, not the only model. The, o the other alternative is, uh, is co-determination, a system in which workers can participate as workers and you also have shareholders who participate as shareholders. And um, in that case, you don't have as much problem to, to raise capital. 
and German firms, as far as I know, are working perfectly fine. They are not as democratic as they could be because co-determination in the end, uh, still when there are disagreements, gives preference to the shareholders. But still, you have there a model where you don't have, I think, huge problems of raising capital. We, well, first of all, the capital pr provision system for small, medium-sized, the middle stand in, in Germany is different from the one we have in here in the States, but that doesn't really answer that case. I think that's, that's entirely fair. Um, we, we had co-determination here up to a point, um, and, and it didn't work that well. And, and it's a bit like, you know... Um, Sorry, when was that? Well, in, 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 when collective bargaining was, was the thing, when you know, most industries were heavily unionized, we were an industrial nation. At the sector level? At the sector level and at the national level. Bargaining was done at the national level through the trade unions, and there were works councils at, at the local level. I know this because before I went to university when I was 19, I, was, I worked for Cabbage Webs, and I was elected to a works council, and I didn't even know what one was. And it was at that point that I started to have my doubts because there is co-determination. The, the workers were represented, represented at the works council at the level of the plant. You know, machinery in, machinery out, goods in, goods out. Should we work? When should we have a tea break? What's all these things going? And there was a fair amount of chit-chat about all that, and everybody was happy, except there wasn't much voice for the ordinary worker because it was all intermediated by the unions. So that's not democracy in my book. That's a kind of loose democracy, but it's no better or no worse. You could say you have the same problem with representation in the case of states, right? Yeah. So but that's why you want to have a mix of exactly. representative democracy, participatory <laughs> democracy, and so on. Exactly. I don't want to, even if I accepted your argument, you know, uh -huh. about state analogy, I don't want to import all those inefficiencies into something that has to be efficient in order to do the job it's supposed, that we all expect uh -huh. it to do. So you are assuming that uh, democracy is less efficient, right? I'm assuming, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that voting of the kind you're talking about is in many cases less efficient and I don't think a case has been made strongly enough anywhere. I mean, it's, you know, it's a bit of a metaphysical question. We, need to, we don't need to look at it just in the question of the Basque community or, or you know, um, in one or two areas where there's a very, very special trading circumstance. It's quite a closed economy, not open up to the same kind of competition. We've got, you know, two and a half, two point one million enterprises in this country, and to turn those into worker democracies, I don't know how it gets done without impeding the work that they do. Now, I'm, I'd be delighted if you'd explain to me how that could happen, and then I might change my mind. But going from where we are now to then, leaving aside whether it's a good thing or not, I don't see how it gets done. You know, you've. I'll give you an example of. Just one of the problems I have. I, I, I was an advisor to, uh, to it wasn't really a cooperative, but it was a kind of, uh, I don't know how they called it, it was a partnership, really, I suppose. And uh, it was a partnership that was spun out of, uh, of, a, of a government agency. And it was very successful for a while on, on limited capital. And what happened was, um, as the company progressed, there was a kind of, I don't know, Selfishness, I suppose, is the right way to describe it. Institutional selfishness, where the, the existing partners suddenly realized that the value of their business would continue to increase if they hired new people, not as partners, but as workers. Now, you know, this is democracy in action. Um, and I can't, you know, again, in, in, in a common room, I can see why these conversations would be really interesting and, and stimulating and um, challenging. 
but in, in the, I'm afraid in the crucible of activity, I don't see, that's just one example, there's hundreds more, I don't see, you know, I think there are too many, there are too many dangers. You, you've got uh, another example of um, an organisation that was similarly structured, it, it was a co-op, and then they, they turned themselves into a public company, because a lot of the generation that founded it decided that it wanted to um, cash in. In fact, we saw this with Goldman Sachs and a whole bunch of, of, um, of partnerships, lawyers and accountants, and, you know, in, in, the, in the 80s and 90s. You know, it's, it's a nice open democratic structure for hundreds and hundreds of years, and then suddenly a generation comes along and decides, oh yeah, this is valuable, we're going to have some of that, and they cash it in. That's democracy at work. So, personally, co-ops is not the, mo the model that I find most attractive, but I wonder why you think that public firms could not have a, a worker's vote every four years, for example, imagine. What would prevent you? What would they be voting on, and I'll tell you? Uh, it could be on anything, right? In anything. All this, the same stuff as what shareholders are voting on. Well, the shareholders don't vote on strategy. Well, negatively they do, right? If they don't approve the strategy that was they proposed to them, they, they don't, do. They don't. I've, never, I've never ever known an AGM uh -huh. to turn around and have a strategic question on its, on its okay. agenda. What they could do is a bunch of shareholders, disaffected shareholders, could turn around privately outside AGM, band up against the guys and behind closed doors, uh -huh. wag their finger. And that is fairly common, as, as, as we know, say we don't like the way you're going and make replacements. But I've never heard it on an agenda where they turn around and say, well, you know, unless somebody's, say, they change boards occasionally, but only after a whole number of other things have been done behind closed doors. Okay, so take that example of uh, uh, General Assembly changing the board, right? Uh, what would what would what would the problem be if we would get would involve would have for example two general assemblies, two constituencies taking the decision or uh, voting on that instead of just one? What happens if they disagree? Who gets the final say? How's then, deadlock broken? Yeah, you, you you need an arbitrator like you you have in the co determination system. That's what happens. Right? Well, I, you know. It happens. They they use it, right? Yeah. It, well, in in Germany, to a point. To I, I was I mean I was on the board of a German merchant bank, and and I found the way they 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 worked very cumbersome, um, and again, you know, it works. It does work better where you're not exposed to huge international competition, or when you're in a fast-moving environment. I think, you know, if if uh, decisions are made much quicker with smaller groups, but I would concede that implementation is often better if you involve as many people as you can. So you can, you know, but decisions need to be made to be quick, and implementation is better because you get by. If you don't, if you don't consult to a point, you get foot dragging. Um, you know, because people are very conservative. You know, let's not kid ourselves. There's a massive number of people who work for organisations that are very conservative. They don't want change. They hate it. They want to resist it. You know, that's that's issue one. Secondly, there's a widespread assumption that everybody wants a say in the business. There's a massive number of people. The last thing they want to do is have a say in the business. The last thing they want. So, you know, what would you be doing? There'll be a bunch of people who say, "Boy, we need. You know, we want some democracy in here." And you might get, you know, just a bit like the state, I suppose, a 30% turnout. A bit like strikes at the moment. You know, you call that democratic. You know, 30 or 40% of the people who are entitled to vote for strikes 
vote and only a small majority and, and they get a majority so you know we're having a massive number of strikes next week on the basis of hardly anybody voting for it but and I don't want the same in a business a business has got a job to do and, and without success in businesses we won't get the state and we won't get we won't get the welfare system and we won't get the schools and we and, and I, you know, I, I just think that uh, the idea of just having a vote, look, if it was passed that there had to be co-determination, believe me, companies would find a way of, you know, slicing, slicing the effectiveness of that. And I think they have in German parts and in some companies in Germany as well. You know, it's more lip service than real. But look, turnout rates is also a concern for states, right? And uh, absenteeism yeah. among citizens is a huge problem. So. And you can't leave a state. Well, you can, but not with these. And, and, and I think, the, you know, the harder it is to exit, the greater there is a claim for voice. But people enter a firm voluntarily. Nobody makes them go and work for organization X or Y. This is okay. a voluntary... So, so look, I mean, this is, of course, an interesting issue and uh, the, the connection between voice and exit. And you can, uh, you can ac actually argue that in many cases, shareholders have an easier exit, in, except in some cases like bankruptcy. But uh, in the standard case, the exit, unless you are also a major shareholder, but if you only have a, sh a few shares in a, in a firm, your exit is often easier than the one of a worker. Well, you say that. <laughs> it's not true? Well, it's true sometimes. In, in, in a fast, rapidly rising stock market, it's probably true. But it's not so easy to exit right now in some of the smaller, medium-sized firms. You know, there's, there's, there's a considerable... Um, I mean, markets narrow, spreads widen. It's very, very difficult to get out of some of these firms. You see that all the time. In very large firms, it's also very difficult to get out oftentimes because, you know, there's big, huge, huge blocks held by institutions. And these institutions aren't able to sell them in the numbers they would like. They're bound in. I mean, if you were to say to me, do we have a problem with absentee shareholderism? I think the answer is, yeah, we do. But what do shareholders provide? They provide permanent capital. It stays in the firm. They sell A to B, the capital's still there, and they've got a claim on that, and they are residual claim holders. The worker can come, the worker can go. They can come and they can go, but they may have specific uh, human capital that if they go, they lose everything. Well, right? you know, that's why we have a welfare system. But then you agree that there is a connection between voice and exit of some type. Well, I said so, yeah. So, so you agree that if it were to turn out that in some kind of markets, uh, workers have a hard time finding alternative jobs, for example, uh, have a hard time finding jobs in democratic firms, then there would be a, a stronger argument in favor of voice, right? Well, it's not the same. Finding, finding alternative employment, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm aware that there's a whole bunch <coughs> of arguments that are wrapped up in this about, you know, I say people are free to move and come and go as they like, but there's a level of coercion born out of economic need. But then I say that's true of all systems, and, I, and, and so what? You know, so what? Um, I, I don't believe, for example, take it another level. I don't believe that workplace democracy would have would have stopped the decline of the shipbuilding industry in the UK. And one of the reasons, only one of the reasons, is that no worker would have voted for wages that were currently being charged in Singapore, Hong Kong, and now China, and probably tomorrow Africa. You know, they didn't do that, and, and why should they? But as it is now, there is nowhere for them to work in the Northeast. It's a desolate, depressed area. I've just visited it, and I can tell you, it's frightening. Nobody says that capitalism doesn't have problems. I just don't believe it will be resolved 
by having everybody having a, a voice at work. The role of capital and the role of labour combine in order to make, to produce stuff that we want, but they have two fundamentally different jobs to do. But, but so would you assume that uh, workers are less knowledgeable and less realistic about what they, are, they can expect from the firm than shareholders? Yes. Why yes. do you assume that? Yes. Well, because I know. <laughs> you don't. I mean, I, I, I know for a fact that workers... Uh, uh, I mean, look, if, if what you're saying... In a, in a workplace, <coughs> employees um, are a very low agency cost way of monitoring... Uh, activities at the local at, at, at the low level, they 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 perform you know apart from the jobs they're doing. There's a sort of mutual monitoring and controlling system because they know things that nobody at the, at the board level or the senior management level can possibly know. It's worthwhile hearing that. It's worthwhile talking about it. It's worthwhile having discussions about it. But when it comes to significant strategic issues, and more importantly, then how you know some of the detailed implementation of those issues. There's, there's a different set of perspectives at work. I'm not saying that employees are stupid. Self-evidently, most places, I mean, they're not. And, and, you know, if you want to succeed, you've got to try. There's a warp of talent out there, and, uh, and talented people will come to you if you give them some kind of voice. I mean, clearly, we've got an issue in, you know, with, with uh, you know, the knowledge, knowledge workers. Whatever way you go in those industries, when they employ massive intensity of knowledge workers, there's huge voice. But it's not democratic. Well, it tends to be more democratic than in the other well, sectors. Yeah, well, then you're talking about more or less or what. But listen, Apple was widely thought to be a diverse, you know, d dispersed <laughs> leadership model and, uh, you know, very democratic, very open with all its knowledge workers. But now poor Steve has gone, you know, to the great Apple in the sky. We discovered that he actually run the place like a rod of bloody iron and it wasn't democratic at all in any meaningful way. So you'd say that the workers are perhaps more knowledgeable than shareholders at the local level, at the very and less at the strategic level? At the, at the level of the office, at the level of the, of the, the water cooler, at the level of, um, you know, a whole bunch of things like in and out, yeah. Uh, no, we're, we're, talk, we're not talking about workers who are, who are you know, I mean, there's, there's different, sorry to say this, doesn't, might be, doesn't suit everybody's sensibility, but there are different grades of workers, even in democratic organisations. And some, by definition, uh, are, are those who will climb upon others to get to the top. Others are very skilled and will work their way to the top naturally, and the rest will find their level. And they're not all experts, and they're not all skilled in the same way, and they're not all, therefore, entitled to the same opinion about the way the firm should work. Because danger, there lies danger. There lies a difficulty in, 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 uh, in producing the right outcomes. That's not to say... I hope you're not implying that therefore you know one wants to treat employees as though they're they're unimportant or or factotums only. But yes, I think there's a different definite knowledge difference between people, different skill sets. Yeah. But you say different knowledge between workers and managers or workers and shareholders? Well, shareholders shareholders are pretty expert actually in, in working out how firms are, are doing, even if they don't, have, if they're not expert in divining British aerospace, for example, the strategy. But it is able to say this strategy is not working. The numbers don't look good. Mm -hmm. Go away and think of another one that's better. 
the managers are often better at implementing deciding what materials to buy, deciding, you know. Uh, and the other thing you've got to understand is, is a lot of businesses succeed because they have, they have, a, they have, a pro, they have an idea. But it has to be re replicable. You can't just do it once. You have to do it over and over and over and over and over again. So they have algorithms. And if you think of a retail organization, what a retail organization does, it, it depends entirely on, on a number of things, mostly footfall. So that's what determines where it's going to site its, its, its shop, its, uh, its uh, price point, uh, you know, the, the, the offer, what kind of clothes it's going to have or whether it's going to be. And, and once it's found its way, not all that's why all the shops look broadly the same, you know, if, if you go into New Look, New Look has a way. If you go into Top Shop, it has a way. These are algorithms. And, and at, at the level of what's the best way to stack the shelves, what's the best way to treat the customer, what's the best way to bring goods off the back of a lorry into the shop so it can be done quickly and efficiently, then people have got plenty of ideas. What's the best thing to buy? Which thing that's going to walk across you know, the, the catalog <coughs> in the land is going to be the best thing to, to, to copy and sell? Yeah. And you couldn't do it. You, you, I mean, you, know, you just couldn't do it. You couldn't take that risk. You're putting... Frankly, you're putting not only shareholders at risk, you're putting the workers at risk too. And I, and I think that's what I would strongly, that's why one of the reasons I mean, it's, it's very difficult. We've got about a half an hour uh, left, so I'd like to get into some question time in a moment. But just before I do that, I want to, want to ask you if you have any final comments, any summary comments you wanted to make before we go into that session, whether there's anything that you had uh, uh, left unsaid to, to, to this point that you wanted to say before we go into questions, or whether you'd want to leave that now for the for the question time. So, any final? Yeah, I, I would. I mean, I, I'd like to return to this question of voice. Um, that, that even if even if you accept, sorry, you, you know, even if you buy into workplace democracy, Bert's co-determination, it would have to be legislated. It would take hundreds and hundreds of years for it to <coughs> bubble up in a natural way. You know, I've got a concern. I've got a concern about um, about it anyway. It's, it's 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 the expropriation of capital once you give equal vote to to to, to the workplace. But voice is a different thing. You know, I mean, we've democratized food. We've democratized wine. We've democratized travel. We've democratized, and, and no doubt the time will come when some form of democracy will 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 emerge. Some stronger form of democracy will will emerge in enterprises. But it'll, it'll have to solve the problems at the level of the firm, not the level of, of the universe or the globe. You know, it's, it's going to be, it'll be implemented when a problem in the firm is confronted and giving greater voice is the right way to solve that problem. It won't solve anything to do with capitalism in a crisis, you know, as a result of bankers. The charge sheet against companies is huge. You know, I mean, I, it's, let's not kid ourselves. It's, big business has probably been the best, the best invention ever. You think of all the things that have come out of it, but it's not perfect, not by a long shot. The charge sheet is huge, you know, and, and, and every day we're looking at uh, in the, in the mine Enron and all that stuff. Look at the issue of inequality of top and bottom. You know, uh, this is just unacceptable. That greed is not ethical. It's not right. So there's a whole bunch of problems to solve, but it's up to society and the state to solve this through the democratic process and say that's the way. Those are the rules of the game. It's up to society to figure out the ethical norms by which companies should operate. It can't be done. It'll never be done 
by a plebiscite of workers in a particular firm. Yeah, so we are back to ideas of competence, right, and assumptions about relative competence of workers and shareholders. We are, uh, I think, the idea of ownership plays some role in the argument too, and and also the the claim that there is a fundamental difference between a state and a firm, and this is, I think, a claim that is uh, problematic. But of course, arguing against it is very difficult. But I believe that both states and firms produce stuff, that the extent to which this stuff is of a different nature is often often exaggerated, I believe. And, uh, and I, be, I believe that since we have strong intuitions about democracy in states, there must be a way of arguing in favor of it in the case of firms too. <coughs> okay, well thank you very much. I'd like to open up questions on that. So, um Um, I, I was fascinated by this debate. I teach corporate law and labor law, so it was really good to see uh, somebody who's uh, in, in business and got very strong views, and also somebody who's coming from a political science perspective. Um, I, I, I really like your four points at the beginning, Paul, um, but I, I'd like the, the second one uh, uh, is what I, I'd like to start with. You said nobody's asking for it, and I'm afraid, Axel, I didn't agree with you conceding that nobody is asking for it, because that, that's just not true, because um, clearly the, the views you're representing are a tiny minority, well not a tiny minority, but a, a, a minority certainly in Europe, because a majority of European member states have some form of workplace uh, co-determination. And um, one of the reasons that people might not be asking for it in this country is just because they don't know enough about it. Uh, so, and, and, and that was your first point, and you said that you didn't know how to define it. Well, uh, I'll define it for you. It's, no, good. It's, it's, work, it's workplace co-determination. It's been operating in Germany since 1920, yeah. as I say, a majority of European Union states. Your third point was that... Um, what, does it, what, what, what does it mean, co-determination? It's a strict set of organ, it's a strict set of si system, isn't it? Well, workers have a vote for the board. Uh, the, the majority uh, system is that workers get to vote one-third of the board of directors. In Germany, it's one half of the supervisory board. Hmm. So, so the, 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 the prevailing system is workers get to vote for one third of the board of directors. Okay. But it's only Germany and Austria, right? And, and the Netherlands and Sweden and Denmark and, uh, and, and the Czech Republic and, um, and, and, and Greece has it in the public sector. And I, I, can't, I can't speak for most of those countries, but <coughs> Germany, I, I gather there's, there's a fair amount of pressure coming from various sources to overturn that system when it comes at the national level because it impedes the speed at which they can they can operate. It's alive and well and kicking and spreading because <laughs> German companies German companies are now spreading into in, into European company yeah, forms yeah. and uh, putting um, uh, in Chrysler was not example where it was exported to the US. Yeah, so yeah, it didn't work. So, so uh, didn't. <laughs> European Works Councils and under the European Company form, non-European workers get a vote uh, in in the German-based company. But the, the analogy between the state and the firm, uh, of course, it, it's not the same thing. Nobody would think that the state was the same as a firm, but the analogy is as strong as uh, as you could imagine. First of all, because there is coercive power in a firm. Is this? Uh, well, the coercive power of dismissal. Because if you don't do what I say, then no, I can dismiss you. No, subordination. There's subordination. Absolutely. Relationship. Absolutely. Now, you ought to know better if you're a Labour lawyer. 
you ought to know better. You can't just walk in and say you're fired because I don't like the look of your face. You can, tr <laughs> you can try it, you can try it, but you won't get away with it these days. In fact, one of the, one of the things the Conservative Party is trying to do is to slam, in, slam the door closed of workers' protection in that area. You cannot just fire somebody out of the blue. My God, if you could, it would make life a lot easier for some managers. You can fire somebody for any business reason. So, um, no, you can't. You really can't. Uh, unfair dismissal uh, is in Section 94 of the Employment Rights Act. The legal cases, uh, I, I, can, I can tell you all about stuff. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> but, but there's also uh, the, the equivalent power of taxation. I mean, it's not the same, but it's analogous because uh, an, an employer will share in the profits that is created by the whole company, including the workforce and the inputs of the shareholder. And, and, and the reason why this isn't happening spontaneously and the reason why you do need to legislate for it is because workers are, are unequal, they're, they're in an unequal bargaining position to get uh, good terms of contracts. Now, you said that you would fundamentally object to legislation because you don't uh, uh, any idea that the state should intervene in in the firm. Well, that means that you're also against the minimum wage. No, 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 no. no, no. This, it, isn't, isn't this, this is sophistry. I mean, it, 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 <laughs> the one does not follow the other. So mm -hmm. let's stop right there. And in fact, I qualified. I said, you know, when it comes to decision making, when it comes to strategy, nobody's arguing that there shouldn't be, uh, you know, working hours, that the directors, minimum wages, health and safety, you know, all, all the things. I mean, if you go on to the, the, the sort of workers' rights, just Google workers' rights, you know, 45 pages of all the things that workers are entitled to. Nobody wants to take them away. Well, possibly, possibly some of the Conservative Party would, but but no, no, no businessman sits there and worries about that too much. But so you wouldn't. Uh, the, the, the right that you wouldn't have would be the right to vote. And, and yes, but, but, that's right. But the problem is that that means that you also wouldn't want the laws that give shareholders the right to vote. Why? Because the law does intervene to grant shareholders the right to vote. Uh, it's it's uh, been in most countries that uh, every shareholder has to have a vote. In the UK, under the Companies Act, Section 168, for instance, there's also the right to dismiss the board of directors by a simple majority. So if you don't want the state to interfere in the workplace relationship, then also presumably you can't support it interfering in the company relationship to giving shareholders a vote. Oh, just, you know, I just, I don't know how many people think leap from one to the other follows. I don't get that at all. I don't think you do either. I think you're playing games. Well, well, well I'm saying you're objecting to workers having a vote for the board of directors. But then, by parity of reasoning, you can't uh, support the laws which mandate that shareholders have a right to vote. Look, unless you claim that shareholders own the firm and the workers don't. Well, of course. But it's not the case. Well, it in law. How do you de derive the fact that they own the firm? You derive it from the fact that they have the right to vote. No. And that's what you want to justify no. in the first place. No, no, the no, no, not from because they have the right to vote, therefore they own it and they own it there because they have the right to vote. Nobody's going to fall into that hole. They own it because they own the permanent capital. They're the residual risk takers. That's but workers own the human capital. They so own the human capital, and 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 I and and there is an argument which you know nobody's brought up. And I, had you done so, I'd have been prepared to concede it. Um, that that after when people put in risk capital, there is an argument that says they only want the, the, whoever provides the capital will do so because they're expecting a payback, and that payback is calculable and finite. And that beyond that, the permanent capital, the, the, the residual rights, should, should then you know, go to a, a broader group of people. Um, probably, the, probably the workforce, for that reason. So in other words, once they've got the money back, everything else is surplus profits. And why should the 
owners of perpetual capital continue to have claims on surplus profit. No, I think there's an argument to be had there. You're still left with a whole bunch of practical reasons. And that's about ownership. That's about the fruits of the, of, of the output of the company. It's about dividends, really. It isn't about the bloody vote. Different thing. I'd like to come back to you in a moment. Yeah, I'll take a couple of other questions and we'll come back to you afterwards. Yeah. Um, thank you very much, both of you. Um, a couple of questions, I think they could go each way. First of all, what do you mean by democracy? Because voting is not the same as democracy. Um, in the employee owned businesses that I visited recently, their collective ownership at the level of the organisation is combined with um, the capability for voice at the level of the task. And I would think that that is a system of democracy where you've got um, each of those levels operating together. So if you will think about that in a, in a kind of capabilities framework, then uh, the capability for voice is more than something that you've just, just described. And it's not it's more expansive than just democracy is a vote. Um, the second thing is, what is work? We've both talked quite a bit about producing stuff, but we also reproduce people. And one of the crises that we're hearing a lot about on the radio is the commodification of care. And um, again, in some of the organisations that, that I know of, um, care within an employee-owned enterprise improves the quality of work that people do, and it then improves the, the services they're able to offer the cared for. Can I first, first question? Uh, I, I agree with you. I think that, uh, and as I said at the beginning, democracy is a lot of things. I ju we just mentioned the right to vote here, but of course it's much more than that. It's deliberation, participation in other ways and so on. Uh, so I agree with that. I think that uh, you mentioned capability and that's an answer to the competence kind of argument that has been used that says, well, if you believe, you really believe that workers are in incapable of taking decisions, then educate, educate them to, so that they, they get this uh, ability to do so. Well, so I mean, the first, I, question. first question, I, you know, um, it, uh, I, I, I don't feel, I, I think that's well answered. At the, the level, at, at, you know, voice at the level of the task, I think that's exactly what I'm saying. You know, it, it, I don't think anybody anywhere, especially in a knowledge business where you're dealing with professionals, nobody would object to that. But that's not democracy as, as has been argued here. If, if, if that's what we're talking about, then that's clear. I mean, I do that all the time. Um, but I, I do have to add something else. At the level of the professionals and where there's high, high level of skills, you know, that's one thing. Not everybody is a professional and has a high level of skills. And, 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 and therefore, at what level do you elevate their decision-making capability in an organisation? But you do both. You educate the, those who vote and you, educate, and you have representatives who specialise like you have in a state. These are two answers to the competence problem. Well, you educate, yes, I mean, I suppose. You, well, not even then. Uh, you know, we, we have, uh, in, in some of our firms, um, a very high level of educational uh, attainment in, um, in, in one particular organisation I'm thinking about. And yet, you wouldn't then say, though, that each one of those individuals feels comfortable and competent about taking certain decisions, you know, the, 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 it, it, it's, it's a nice, I know, this sounds stupid and I'm sorry about this, it's a nice idea and it may come, it really may come, but, but the level, 
that level of decision making capability I think is is not it's not it's not fungible. Well, um, it's an interesting one, that. Um, I, I don't know if I'll do the answer justice, but let me... One of the things you hear is that private sector entrepreneurial, public sector bureaucratic. Well, one thing we do know, that there's a large number of organisations uh, in public limited, public limited liability companies, traded companies, that are nothing but bureaucracies. They're not entrepreneurial in any way, shape or form, and they act and respond and think like the parody of the public sector is supposed to be. And yet they still pay themselves vast sums of money because they're smart and all the rest of it, which they ain't. And, and their job their job reduces and their job, you know, they, they, they're cost cutters. That's how they keep their profits up. I'm generalizing, but that's probably how it goes. The public sector is, is, is struggling in the same way. It's a very, very difficult thing to make the public sector responsive to people's needs. Governments continue to try to do that, civil servants continue to try to do that, and, and, and the world changes almost fast as they can respond. And now we've got this idea, whether we you know, mock it or otherwise, of the, um, of the, the sort of social enterprise as a really big society kind of thing. And I think there's some useful things that will come out of that. Um, I'm hoping to be doing some work with, with, uh, with a, a firm of consultants who are specifically advising local authorities on how to uh, devolve into into a quasi-commercial structure some of the services they offer. Now, I'm I'm not sure it'll work and deliver services. One thing I do know is that if it's not set up properly, then they will go flat on their face, and people will lose those services that they that they were originally provided with. There's no backstop to that once they start to move it out. So I think you know public sector is going through and, and will go through an extraordinary amount of change. And I would say one other thing, which is not strictly relevant, but it really gets my goat. I'm sick and tired of hearing politicians of all sorts talking in, in business speak as though they really understand what the hell they're on about. You know, and, and, and they do a lot of disservice and an injustice to large parts of the public sector by behaving like that, constantly reorganising and choking it on the bones of its own discussion. You know, I, I just think that's, that's wrong. There's a lot the public sector can only do in private sector shouldn't be anywhere near doing it. And that's one of the differences between the state and the, and the firm. It wasn't a great answer, but at least I've got a few things off my chest, thank you. <laughs> um, I'd like just to come back um, once more to this issue of co-determination and whether or not it can work or cannot work and to what extent it can efficiency. So, um, given that we do have co-determination does seem to work there. Um, I was wondering why do you think it wouldn't work here? What's what's the what's the difference? I mean, one thing you said, you know, in, um, it doesn't work in with recovery in a crisis, but it, it seems to me that co-determination in Germany is actually, at least in some 
companies have been quite efficient in the sense it creates a sense of loyalty. And what in fact has happened in the crisis is that people have actually voted for things such as mm -hmm. reducing their salaries for the benefit of the company. Um, so it doesn't seem to me to be right to think that co-determination and crisis recovery necessarily need to be incompatible with each other. In fact, it seems to me some German companies have fared better precisely because they have co-determination and the loyalty of the workforce. Yeah, I think one of the problems with the Anglo-Saxon model is, is, is the, the sort of reach out for the cost-cutting machine. And, you know, as soon as you've got a crisis fire, people will close plant. I mean, that's definitely something that, that's a weakness. I chastise myself this very minute because I didn't do enough thinking about the co-determined model. I mean, most of what I'm, I know is, is US and, and the UK, which are slightly different. Also, the structures of our economy are different, and I do think sort of some kind of co-determination, as we used to have in, when, when Britain was an industrial nation, is more workable than it is, say, in, in, you know, in advertising and so forth. Because in advertising or fund management, you've got a lot of highly intelligent people. I mean, I, I used to say there was only three decisions a year I had to take as CEO as a fund management company. If I got those right, the company would prosper. The rest of the time was dealing with people because they're difficult buggers, you know, they really are. They don't just sit there and do as you tell them. They really push back. I mean, the reality is that you're constantly renegotiating. You know, there's a constant renegotiating of rules of engagement in, in firms where there's lots of people. In, in, a, in, a, in an industrial system, an industrial process, you know, maybe there's more scope because they are slower, you know, to change. The decisions are more longer term. You're buying plant and equipment that's supposed to last 20 or 30 years, you know. When you're, when you're a, an advertising agency or a fund management company, there's very little capital. The capital uses people, and that's a different. Things move very quickly. Secondly, I have a suspicion, but I can't prove it because I don't know enough about it, and that's why I'm chastising myself. I have a suspicion that co-determination is one of those words that covers, it, it says more than it is. I suspect the voice that the workers have in reality probably isn't as great as it is in theory, but I don't know that. I don't know that. And, well, look, I mean, you know, people here will tell me otherwise, but believe me, I'm going to go back and find out about this because I'm not... My memory, and it's a dim one, and it's a very partial one, my memory was that the, the voice of the worker wasn't as great as co-determination would suggest that it was. But I could be wrong. Certainly, they can vote for boards, but, you know. Can I ask another question, so partly related to that? So one other thing that I found interesting is that you said, well, the role of companies to produce stuff. stuff. And, um, one other difference that um, I noticed between Germany, the UK, I'm not so sure because I haven't been here for that long. So. And uh, certainly, I think it's true that a lot of companies in Germany also operate on that level, and increasingly so. But it's also true that at least to some extent in the public discourse, when you hear voices of prominent um, <coughs> company owners and businessmen, what they tend to say is that not only do they want to produce stuff and make profit, but they also see themselves as having actually a role of responsibility mm -hmm. uh, for society and companies are supposed to work for the betterment of society, not just for yeah, profit of course. and stuff. So I was wondering stuff is broad. How, how that yeah, stuff is broad effect, how that sort of fitted into Framework because it seems to me that that and sort of if you have if you take that view it lends itself a bit more easily to as well thinking that well look I mean I should I should involve my my workers because they have a stake in that 
Well, no, I mean, it, it can't be the only criteria, but it's got to be a pretty powerful criteria. Secondly, you're talking about stakeholders. Okay, well, you know, one of the problems that those people arguing for work and democracy really have is that they get confused and, and thrown off the scent sometimes by saying, well, you know, why, if, 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 you're not, if, if, you, if you don't want to privilege the, the, the shareholder, you're going to involve the worker. Well, hang on, you're into stakeholders then. Why only the worker? Why not other stakeholders? And then what happens? You know, and that's been... That's been run over time and time again. 20 years we've been talking about that, and we still can't find a way through. In theory, everybody who's affected by the firm should have some kind of sensation of, of you know, of, of, of an outcome. But that's not the same as a vote. You know, there's, there's a lot more. Secondly, I, I don't see that the two are connected. I think any decent employer, um, any decent employer, will want to try and bring his people with him or her people with them, and, and will also want to do what's right and what's good for society. And, and there's a lot of reasons for that. One is it's, it's they ought to try, I mean, I'm, I'm a bit for many fail, but, but one, it's, it's good for business. Two, it's good for, for society at large. And, and, and three, it's just the right thing to do, you know. But, I put it another way, there are more... Well, you know, you, you can legislate. You can legislate green policies. You can legislate all sorts of policies, which which are fine. Companies don't move fast enough. But one of the things that, that's changed a lot in the last ten years is that there are more groups monitoring external groups monitoring business activity than ever before. I mean, data is available. They're on the case night and day. And it's interesting because they get funding, and it's voluntary funding they get to support those activities, which means there's a big section of the community that cares a great deal about how firms operate, and that is changing the way firms think. You know, like I say, we have democracy of, of food and wine and travel, and, and, and bit by bit by bit, firms will become more democratic. As, as, as machinery is less important, people become more important. But it'll take time, and it'll be there, and it'll only be implemented by firms because it solves problems at the level of the firm. I don't ever see it being implemented by statutes. Uh, my name is Hugo Fiesma. I'm from the continent, like Axel, from the Netherlands, actually. Done research on works councils in the Netherlands. And uh, um, two things to mention here. Um, first of all, um, think about institutions different, be different between countries, but institutions have also an impact on culture and the mindset. Um, things you mentioned uh, about, about uh, democracy in the workplace, etc. Um, you could hear maybe in the continent in smaller companies, but in big companies it's quite rare. Uh, evidence from survey as well, asking uh, employees, managers about uh, what works councils contribute to the, to the efficiency of the, in the, in the, the operating of the company, and, and there are many arguments. And uh, you mentioned organisational change. I think it's one of the main arguments also to, to yeah to create an involvement and, and, and base of commitment. Um, and maybe come up with other other, 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 other alternatives, um, so it could even yeah improve decisions. But also there's something about um, what I what I sensed is also you, you thought um, well workers wouldn't be capable to 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 to, to bear responsibilities for yeah making decisions. And uh, when you look at the law uh, on co-determination in the Netherlands, there's something about um, 
um, confidentiality, because that's one of the issues. Because, for example, a planning of a merger, uh, there would be the risk of works councils that you know, things would become public before the shareholders know it. So it could be damaging the, the share prices. Uh, that's not even that is not well. It's in the law. You, you know, uh, information can be kept confidential, but in practice, it's hardly needed because works council they're very much aware of the, of, the, of, of, of what's at stake and what, what what's at risk. They have the same kind of responsibilities in as a, yeah, and, and and they can they they carry those responsibilities. I, I really, as you've discovered, I can't comment on, on uh, things that uh, in, in, uh, I just don't know enough about. I, but it, you do remind me of the days when we had nationalised industries here. I mean, you know, I don't know what percentage, but 40% of the, of the GDP, productive GDP, was, was coming from nationalised industries. And we did have a kind of co-determination. There were union representatives on the board, and uh, well, the workers didn't have a right to vote. Unions didn't have a right to place people, and there were complex consultation mechanisms put in place. And one of the problems uh, that I remember, it's going back a long way, but is the idea of capture. And trade unionists, funny enough, were captured. And it was one of the reasons why trade unions never ever liked the idea of worker democracy, because unless they couldn't intermediate it, they felt very strongly that, um, that, that they were being, you know, that their power was being usurped. And, and, and we used to knight, I mean, people who were in their youth, rabid left-wingers, I mean fiercely, violently left-wing, and they'd get on the board because that would be the way to shut them up, and, and you'd give them a knighthood, and before you knew who they were, I mean we used to have some Labour politicians over now, they were strutting around, and, and the question of capture is a very important one, I think, and, and you know, that's to be resolved, but you might say, well that's a second order question, let's get the bloody votes first and we'll worry about that later. Uh, fair dues. One of the big questions that hasn't come up, which we won't have time to deal with, is, is in fact, I'm not so one group of employees who have power, massive power, are the managers. And one of the biggest problems we've got in, in Anglo-Saxon um, corporations is the capture by the managers of, of, of the organisation, who've robbed for a variety of reasons, the shareholders and indeed the workers of, of some of the authority. And, and that's one of, I mean, for me, that's probably the single biggest problem that companies face right now. And, uh, you know, um, what are we going to do about that? And you might argue, well, workers sitting there will stop them happening. I don't believe, I don't believe for a minute that worker democracy would have stopped Enron. That was a gatekeeper problem. That was a problem of outside, um, outside, uh, and then we'll come along the others. Anyway, I'll just throw that in. Because we did have we did have a kind of co-determination structure, not like not like you've described, but it didn't work. Okay, now slowly have to start wrapping up. There's a question at the back. Yeah, no, it's just a, it's just a comment, I guess. I mean, it was a, it was a very interesting debate. I guess um, we're thinking we we talked about the organisation of the workplace in a number of different ways, including giving giving the right to vote, a number of, of different ways. But I guess one of the things around democracy is probably information and information flows and controlling information flows. And I think what seems to be happening with social networking, with, um, with various, other sports, various other forms of media, is in fact the, um, the, the inability, in many ways, increasingly for companies and firms to control that information flow. And I think gradually, I, I was just thinking, how do you think that gradually will, will affect what we call democratization of the workplace or democracy? 
Yeah, one of, one of the things, one of the arguments came up about democracy is that the real democracy in the commercial environment is through the consumer. You know, they vote with their, with their dollar. I don't really buy that because they're manipulated a great deal. We as consumers are dragged all around the countryside by our noses. But um, when social networking first came, you know, came along as a force, uh, it was very powerful and, and it pulled companies up short and shot them, didn't they? But of course they've learned to respond. What they've done is they've captured the damn thing and this is what they're very good at. They've gone out and all the smart people who knew how to, how to set up social, manipulate social network for their own benefit, they've been hired by companies. You know, like hackers that used to hack the company. The company now hires the hacker and hack the other company. And, and yeah, this, this game is, is a serious concern. Again, I don't see what work of democracy would do about stopping that. But I think in terms of governance, uh, I think it's a hugely interesting, as yet unplumbed uh, issue. Right? We've got a lot to learn yet before, you know, certainly before we can give some definitive answer on that. I think we've got, we've got some serious problems in, in that area. I don't, I don't like the idea of being manipulated, but we are, aren't we? Really? We're gonna not by to you. <laughs> I'm not smart enough to manipulate anybody. Point. We have to be extremely punctual in these rooms about our timekeeping. Did you want to say any final words, Axel, before we, uh, before we close at this point? Or either of you, any closing words? Yeah, so I think that philosophers have a lot of work to do. It's the case for many issues. Um, but the reassuring thing is that workplace democracy exists to some extent in many places. Uh, I also, I'm also convinced that uh, some of the arguments, like the competence argument, are not the best arguments against it. But of course, there are things we need to, to address seriously. Okay, great. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Thank you for your questions. I thought it was a great debate. Thank you. So thanks Thank you. Very much.